0: Well, not only are we in full holiday mode and travel mode, I believe somebody left this morning after they agreed to do part of the worship service. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, it's good to have all of you here, and we are in holiday mode, and, and I'm proud to be a part of this congregation. Um, why do you work for Jesus? Why, what brings us together today to keep the family quiet, to obey the rules, to keep your spouse from nagging at you, or a great sense of obligation, or maybe guilt over sin? What are the motivations that keep us connected to the church and keep us coming together and keep us working to reach out in the community and do the various things we do to serve and to try to be helpers, even skilled helpers? We may be wanting to be seen of men. We may be thinking somehow we'll earn God's favor in in a more positive way or maybe add stars to our crown. Or maybe it's a great sense of duty, a sense of obligation It says, I need to do this. And that's a great calling, a great positive motivating factor to have this call of duty. And we appreciate that in our soldiers and those that defend our country or those who are first responders for fire and police and emergency room workers and doctors and all these people that help save humanity and make us better and and get us over the problems we have. But duty, the call of duty leaves something lacking because there's something even greater than this push, this call of duty. It could be that it's gratitude. A sense of, of wonderful gratitude for what's been done for us. I was watching a news clip a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago I guess now, and this young man, between the ages of like 20 to 30 years old, somewhere along in there, was from a war-torn country. He lives, I think, in Greece now. And he was... Nine years old, when he was on a refugee boat, it was just piled full of people, some kind of barge or raft, and they were escaping from a war-torn country, going over to one of these countries that received refugees, and they were going onto to the shores of Greece, and the thing capsized, or some, some trauma happened, and rescue boats were coming from the shore to get these refugees and, and pull them to safety. And he said, I was there, separated from my family. I was nine years old, in the water, didn't know what I was going to do, and I was desperate. And he said, a man I'd never seen before got a hold of me and put me on his shoulders and put my feet on his shoulders. And then as the boats got near, he said, he pushed me up by the heels. He pushed me up so that someone could hold me and pull me onto the rescue boat. And I looked down and saw him as he disappeared in the depths and drowned. I don't know who the man was and I never saw him before or again. But he said, the least I could do is reach out and try to help somebody else who desperately needs help. So now he spends his time full time on rescue boats looking for refugees and trying to help them. And I think if we look at the life of a man like the Apostle Paul, he had such a feeling of gratitude because he knew the kind of person he had been before he was a Christian. And he knew the temptations of life and the burdens of life and all these things he carried with him. He knew the issues of his own heart. And he knew that in spite of all that and beyond all that, on top of all that, God had considered him, had blessed him in so many ways. And so in Second Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul mentions this idea that the love of Christ constrains us that could be taken two ways, probably both ways, the love we have for Christ and the love he has for us. And both of those are motivating factors. And when we realize, as Steve mentioned in his communion prayers, that no man took his life from him, but he gave it willfully. He became the great sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. And Paul knew it was his sins that were accounted for there and that Christ took them away. And God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's how much God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. So Paul is responding to that and writing to Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in an unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, all I have to do is sit around for a few minutes and think about the path I was down, headed down and where I was going and where that lifestyle would end up. And I realized that when I saw the light, when Christ got me and got my attention, that things changed for the better. And even though I'm suffering in all these ways, Christ considered me faithful. He strengthened me. And I just want to enumerate some things from what we read from the pen of Paul and and the things that were in his heart that were motivators for him to be able to do the things that he did. And it doesn't just apply to him. It applies to every Christian. These are basic foundational principles that are enduring, timeless. For one thing, Paul says that he was grateful that that Christ had chosen him. He had not gone looking for Christ. He had gone looking for people who followed Christ, who called themselves Christians, people of the way. And he was looking for them to persecute them, put them in jail, even kill them. And that was his mission. And he, in good conscience, was going right against the very will of God, thinking he was doing God's will. And in that condition, Christ comes looking for him because he knows in his infinite wisdom the heart of a man like, the, like Saul of Tarsus. And so he says to Ananias, when Ananias gets the message from God, I want you to go lay hands on this man. This is after the encounter on the road to Damascus, after the blindness, and, or during the blindness. And, and so Ananias is going to be sent to lay hands on him and restore his sight. Ananias knows that Saul is a persecutor of Christians and you're sure that he's like, I can't go touch this man. I can't get close in the same room with him. If he finds out I'm a Christian, I'm in trouble. Do you want me to go lay hands on him? So then God's rebuttal to that was... Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. It's interesting that that's God's plan, to take this man who is causing all this suffering and laying waste the church and persecuting the saints, and he says, I'm going to choose him, and I'm going to choose him to suffer for my name's sake. And then Paul will gladly accept the mission when he realizes what the, what's at stake there. And so he says to the, to the church at Rome, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. We normally associate this calling and this special thing with the first century, with the apostles, with the miracles they could do, and with all these special things as the church was established with the Holy Spirit and the fire and the wind and all these sounds and, and all this glory. And yet we are chosen just as much as Paul was. In a little bit different way, but not that much different. So Paul says to the Romans, you're the called of Jesus. And then Jesus says to His disciples in John 15, verse 15, these are the original twelve, the first disciples, but He says to them, you have not chosen Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and whatever you ask of the Father in My name, may He give it to you. Peter said to the Christians that he wrote to, you are a chosen generation. That is, the church, the people, the family of God. These have been chosen by God. And if you unpack this truth, you, you realize that He's talking about us. He's talking about every Christian that signs up for duty, every Christian that accepts the challenge, that puts on Christ in baptism. We, even though we in our freedom of choice choose to follow Christ, we are part of God's eternal purpose that now we become the chosen of God. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? There is no plan B. This is the great calling of the Christian. Christ has chosen us the same way He chose them. I'll use anybody who will, as the Holy Spirit says there in the book of Revelation, that everything is summed up. The great calling is whosoever will may come. And whoever does, does. And they're in and, and they're called and chosen. And in light of what was coming... The eternal weight of glory as contrasted with our momentary light affliction. It would be worth it all. It was a good thing to be chosen to suffer for Christ. In fact, you think about the things that weigh on our hearts. I went this week, um, Tuesday night, for visitation for my aunt, who was my mother's last uh, remaining sibling. And so now that she died, this aunt died 90 years old. Uh, that family's all gone, except for all of us cousins and third cousins and all of that. And... Um, watching the family and going back over the Scriptures that talk about the sorrows of life and the reality of death and the hope of the resurrection and all of that. These are heavy things. And then we look around. At this time of the year, the families, somebody I saw a Facebook post somebody put on there said, why don't we have Christmas and Thanksgiving six months apart because who needs to see all these people this close together? And so we do have our problems. We have, we have the things that we have to work through. We, they're just right there. We've got to do it. We didn't choose it, but you got the divorce. You got the, the uh, desertion or the death, the whatever it is. All these things and the families come back together and intermingle and we got all these issues there and these things we think are heavy. And Paul calls all of this, whether it's death or whether it's any of these things that seem to be against us, these are momentary and they are light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has in store for us in the real world. So, Paul, so James would say, Count it all joy, my brethren, to be... Tested. When your faith is tested, it works patience. Be joyful. There's no reason. Why would we, Why would anybody choose to die a bitter person? I know it's not easy. And if you're on drugs or incapacitated or out of your mind, things change. You don't have control over everything like that. But why not die happy? Why not make the best of everything that we've got? The Lord has been mindful of me. He blesses and blesses again. I'm rich. I'm happy. Why not go that way and, and choose to live that way? So Paul was grateful. He, was, he had a heart of gratitude that God had chosen him. And secondly, that Paul was trusted by Christ. And he says, just as we have been allowed or approved of God to be put in trust with the Gospel. And that is the idea that Christ, who set all this up, trusts us to get the story right. You know how hard it is to communicate. I, doing things live like this, you never know what's going to happen or what's going to be said or misstated. And I like to watch the news, and when somebody stumbles, I can't help but it just gets me because I'm like, I feel their pain. And one of the locals a while back was saying, we're going to have a thing tonight, you know, Dickie Stevens Park here in North Little Rock, the baseball park and all. And she said, and tonight at Sticky Stevens Park. And I was like, oh yes, that's so cool because you, you never know in the communication uh, deal. And uh, one of the preachers we had one time for a gospel meeting here was going to try to... He tried to say we had a leaky faucet, and he said we have a faucet leaket. And uh, I thought I wrote it down in my Bible. I thought, this is so cool, because you never know what's going to come out. And then communicating something simple. I'll, I'll tell somebody, like, a, send them a text, and I'll say, so when, are you, when will you be back in town? And you think you could figure out what that means, but we could analyze it and figure out we don't even know that. But if I say... When will you be back in town? And the reply comes back, We're coming back Monday. Well, what does that mean? Okay, I have to analyze that. Are they in Dallas? Okay, they're in Dallas. Did they drive? Are they flying? Okay. If they're driving, it'll be five hours or whatever. Are they they leaving at 5 a.m.? They'll be back before noon? Are they leaving at noon to be back about dinner time? They're leaving at dinner time getting in at midnight so they'll actually be back at work on Tuesday? I mean, what does it mean we're coming back Monday? And we think we know something as simple as that. And yet, we have the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, and we're gonna to try to communicate that to this world out there of all these different belief systems and, and uh, theologies and, and uh, ignorance and, and superstition and atheism and all of that and try to get it right. And yet Christ said, here it is, I want you to deliver it. And that means he trusts us to get it right. And Paul never forgot what he had been. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, he uses a term in the Greek, ekrometai, which means, uh, in the King James, it translates it, born out of due time. I was like a child born out of due time. And we know if we translate that into modern English, one, one terminology is abortion, but there are several ways that a birth doesn't work, and some is when you murder the child or abort it purposely, but then there's other ways, complications, it doesn't go full term. Whatever way you look at that, it's not a it's not a good thing. And Paul says, "Morally, I was like that. I wasn't fully developed. I was messed up." And so he says, "I was like a child born out of due time." And God had chosen Paul while he was still Saul. But the thing about it is we're all still in that same boat. We're all moral failures as well in that same uh, situation. Because in Romans 3 and verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And another passage says, For the Scriptures have concluded all under sin. That is, all that were without Christ. And so in our sin, harmatia means miss the mark. Just like shooting an arrow or throwing a ball, you can miss by going too short. Too far or left or right, you can miss the target. And sin is like that. You cannot reach what you should be reaching morally and ethically, spiritually. But you can also transgress or go beyond, go past the mark, step out of bounds. And so in our sins, missing the mark, we are like this, like Paul was, like Saul. In our trespasses, overstepping the bounds, doing what we're not supposed to do, committing some kind of sin. Or in our iniquity, perverting that which is good. Or in our guile projecting that which is false or deceit. To the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, he lists a bunch of bad things. Extortioners, thieves, murderers, whoremongers, all those kind of things. And he says, and they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified... In other words, you've been chosen by Christ to come out of that life, put off the old self and put on the new self, and things are going to be all right. So in that sense, it doesn't matter what we used to be. Sometimes we think we're too messed up to ever get saved, and yet when somebody wants to be helped, no matter what their circumstances, skilled helpers can reach in and reach down or reach out and help them and get them on their feet and get them going again if they want to do that. And entire lives can be turned around morally and spiritually. This means that God trusts us with the Gospel. So not only was Paul chosen and trusted, but he was also strengthened. He said, now God picked me out, He, he chose me, He trusts me with the Gospel, and He gave me the strength to handle all this. And in Philippians 4, to the church at Philippi, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not everything, not leap tall buildings in a single bound, or, or be faster than a speeding bullet or any of that, but anything that's required of me, I can do that. Because Christ strengthens me. And Paul never said, Look what I've done, but rather or look how good I am at this, but rather look what the Lord has enabled me to do. In first Timothy chapter one, verse eleven and twelve, Paul says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Now, if you could take that mantle on yourself just for a few minutes and think about that that this is to me and to you, that Christ has considered you faithful. He will give you the strength you need. He will put you into service. And might I suggest that in this congregation, there's nothing that you can do that we don't need. There is a place for everybody. Well, I can't teach a class or I can't preach. I can't lead singing. Well, if you can drive a pickup truck and haul boxes, one of these days we'll need that. There's something for everyone in the body of Christ. And Christ strengthens us to be able to do what we find ourselves able to do in the the kingdom. And God never requires anything of us we cannot do. And not only that, but even when temptation comes. And we know that... When we are tempted, we are not tempted by God. But when the temptation does come, and every man is tempted when he is led away by his own lust and enticed by that, and then he commits sin, and sin, when it's finished, produces death, we have this problem. And yet, along with that, when that happens, God will also provide the way of escape. First Corinthians ten, thirteen. Jesus said, I'll be with you always. And He said, Go, and I will go with you. Not sit still and huddle, and I'll sit with you. But go and I'll go with you and I'll be with you always. And as we read a moment ago, Jonathan read for us in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of love and of power. And finally, Paul says he was glad or he was thankful, he was grateful that he had been sent. He had been chosen by God. He had been trusted by God. He had been strengthened by God. And then God sends him as an apostle out into the world to to do this and to preach the truth, and to serve as a Christian, serve as a minister. And his attitude about that was, I'm so glad, I'm so glad, in spite of what I used to be and what I used to do, that God has a place for me and that I can be useful. And so he, his view toward his leadership role, his ministry, his calling, his mission, part of it is seen in the passage in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16 to 23. <clears throat> he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion." For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Notice there, I'm under obligation, I am under compulsion. Now here's that sense of duty. But he put the duty on himself because of this great this gratitude he had for the salvation and the strength and the, the, the choosing and the sending and all that. And he says, If I do this voluntarily, if I preach and everything's going well, fine, I have a reward. But if it's against my will, if when I preach people try to stone me to death. If I go into a town and try to show them the the true way of the Lord and they put me in prison for it, then that's okay because I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. And even though I'm not under the law, as a Christian, the law of Moses is taken out of the way and nailed the cross. Even though I'm not under the law, I become as one under the law so that those who still live under the law, I might reach them. And he goes on to say to the weak, verse 22, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. It seems that Paul understood that he drew energy and spiritual strength from the efforts he gave to save others. And that it wasn't putting stars in his crown, as it were, chalking up a big score for what all he did for others, but that by doing that, he became a partaker. When more people are saved and more people are taught, he was energized by that very thing. He says, necessity is laid upon me. That is, I have to do this. I've got to do it. I feel such a sense of gratitude. And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And even though he was talking to those first century disciples, we are sent the same way as Christians, by the same authority, for the same purposes, and in the same way. And Paul said, I'm an apostle, but I was not sent from men or through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul carried the gospel to all the known world of his day, and he did it in great suffering and through great persecution. But he had a great attitude through it all. Because he said, If I continue to live, it'll be fruitful labor for me, but if I die, well I'll just go to heaven and be with God. How good is that? So he he wasn't scared of anything and he wasn't ashamed of anything. He was living for the Lord. And in one thing that Sean read for us a couple of weeks ago in, in his great series on faith, and he, he mentioned this this passage in First Corinthians eleven, verse twenty two, beginning, as Paul almost as it it were, gives his credentials. He says, well, you think you're religious? Let me tell you about my religion. You think you've got credentials? Let me tell you about mine. So he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, but I'm more so. In far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers. In dangers from robbers. In dangers from my countrymen. So here he's describing all these things as Indiana Jones would go through. And he says, I've been near, pretty near kilt everywhere I turn. And then he gets, it even gets worse. Because now he's got his own countrymen to thank for some of his persecution. Gentiles, danger there, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, dangers on the seas, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship. False brethren? You mean you mean you'd go to a congregation that you had even established some time ago and you come back to visit and there're brethren there, so-called brethren there that are really not true Christians. They don't act and talk and live like Christians. You have to try to sort this out, or you have to deal with the saints who are persecuted and hurting because of those false brethren. So he's got that on his mind. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And not only that, my brain won't shut off. Even if I'm not floating in the ocean about to drown, or not being snake bit, or not being thrown have stones thrown at me. Even if everything is fine, and I'm now lay me down to sleep. He's got to think about and remember all that stuff and wonder what's coming next. And then he says, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So now he's got heavy on his heart the brethren that he has brought into the church. Are they still there? Will they stay there? He's probably thinking about somebody he saw at the last congregation he visited. And he looks at this woman out there in the audience and he's thinking, why is she... What's wrong with her? And why is she looking at me like that? And so he's preaching even though he's got the power of the Spirit and he's going at it and he's just got his lesson together and he's proclaiming the oracles of God. And then after church and he goes to to home with somebody to stay and he goes, Oh, man, I know who that was. Oh, man, it was her husband that I took and had him stoned outside of the town and she was the one that was crying so bad. That's who that was. And now he's living with that kind of thing, and yet he's able to forgive himself. But he thinks about all the brethren. Who is weak without my being weak? If there are weak brethren out there, then that makes me weak. And who is led into sin without my intense concern? Now, if we put ourselves in this template, then what do we do about those who are led away into sin? We say, well, that's their problem, or sorry, or I'm glad it's not me, or do we suffer with them? He said, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. But then finally, let me close with several verses here in 2 Timothy 4 as Paul is looking back on his life and he's sort of summing it all up and he's writing to Timothy the second letter and he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. i fought the good fight, i finished the course and I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not to me only but also to all those who have loved His appearing And this is the idea of a a sense of gratitude. Those of us who are prepared to meet the Lord are going to see a great friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. And when when the clouds are rolled back like a scroll and we have Jesus coming with all of His mighty angels, then we're going to be seeing a friend. But the Revelation, book of Revelation pictures another scene at the same time for those who are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they're going to be crying out, a certain phrase and asking for something and what they're asking for is that the mountains would fall on them you know have you ever been hot and you want some kind of a shield I remember one time when, the, when my oldest grandson was little about four years old or three years old and playing t-ball and we were at the what's now CAC campus on JFK and it was hot it seemed like it was 110 anyway I was standing there and it was so hot and there was no shade And I saw a wire right there, and I thought, I wonder if I could feel the shade of that wire by just getting my forehead there and just see if I can tell there's any shade. And I thought about the rich man in torment and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger. These people are seeing the wrath of God, and they're saying, we want a mountain between us and God. Mountains fall on us and protect us from the wrath of God. And yet the rest there are the lambs of God, the sheep being told, enter in. As Paul talks about this, he said, "The time of my departure has come." And the word there in the original text has several meanings in the classical Greek and in the, the, the scriptural text. But the idea of analusis, the word picture there when he says, "The time of my departure," you know, I don't travel much, but I I was traveling to go to do my aunt's funeral Tuesday night and Wednesday, so I packed everything. But when I packed everything in my little bag, had my toothbrush and floss and all those personal things, but I had to brush my teeth a couple more times before I left, so I'd brush my teeth and put stuff back in the cabinet, and then I'd start to go out. i go, oh, man, those don't go in the cabinet. They go in this bag. And so then we went to a trip for two or three days after that, and it's like I can't remember who I am. My muscle memory says do this, put the toothbrush there, do this, put the razor there and all this, and packing to leave. But one of the word pictures here in this idea is it's time to go. You pull up steaks, pack up your suitcases, and you take off on a journey. And Paul said when you end your life, it's like that. You just pack up and and you leave, pull up stakes. It's also a word picture used to loosen the yoke on an oxen, a team of oxen at the end of a day's work. You take the yoke off of them, put them out in the corral or out in the pasture and set them free and let them walk around and their burdens are over. And Paul said when when life is over, it's like that. It's like being set free. Or another word picture is the bonds of a prisoner. The handcuffs, the leggings, or the shackles, whatever it is, it's like being turned loose. When you die, you're just finished with all that hardship and all that hard labor, and you're set free. And another picture, a final one, is of loosening the mooring ropes on a ship. And that is the idea that when you let go of this shoreline here and and pull up the mooring ropes, then you set sail on a journey. But to get to the new place, to get to the glorious new shore and the new land and a place of freedom... You have to get out of sight of the old place and say goodbye to all those people. And Paul has this word picture there. He says, well, I'm just already at the end. My time's about up, but I know where I'm going to be going, and I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. It may be that you're motivated out of a great sense of joy, and I think you are if you just think about your own life and your own forgiveness and your own Christianity, and it helps us to keep going and never give up because of that sense of of gratitude for what the Lord has done for us, giving us a a gift unspeakable, the greatest gift, the gift of His Son. And today, if you are not yet a Christian, but you know what you need to do, you need to confess the name of Christ, and you need to be baptized into Him for the forgiveness of your sins, we can do that this morning. Or if you have a prayer request for strength or forgiveness or any other reason, if you want to let me know that as we stand together and as we sing, if you'll come, we'll, we'll pray.